Our scripture this morning is a repeat of one of our verses from last week as we have entitled this an addendum to 2 Peter 3.9. 2 Peter 3.9 said, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Mosaic Law that's recorded for us in the Old Testament with all of its ceremonies, all of its cleansings, all of its feast days, was a method that God used to reveal His plan for the redemption of mankind. All of the ritual of the law along with the commandments revealed to us the sinfulness of man and illustrated for us in that ritual the redemption that God would provide through a coming Messiah and would find their fulfillment then in the virgin birth, the sinless life, the sacrificial death, the victorious resurrection, the glorious ascension, the present intercession, and the soon coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The commandments with all of the thou shalts and thou shalt nots help us to understand the sinfulness of man as it compares to the holiness of God. And at the same time, it declares God's amazing grace. The plan that God developed in eternity past that would enable sinful man to be declared to be holy and without blame before Him. That would provide a means whereby we, though we were sinners, could have a relationship with the Holy God. The word grace is translated from the Greek word charis. Charis means for one to assume all of the responsibility and pay all of the cost for relationship with another person. God has treated us in grace by personally assuming all of the responsibility and all of the costs that was involved in our redemption from sin. Romans chapter 5, verses 21 and following, uh, verse 12, I should say, and following says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is a figure of him that was to come, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. 
For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded to many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift, for the judgment was by one to redemption, but the free gift of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and through the Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate in human flesh, through His death and resurrection, the potential for the salvation of whosoever will was made. By one man sinned into the world, and by another man the redemptive plan of God was revealed, uh, that man being none other than Jesus Himself. We saw in our study last week in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that God did not develop a plan that any should perish, but He developed a plan so that all could come to repentance. Our expanded translation of that verse read this way, The Lord is not continually slow concerning the promise, as some men continually consider slowness, but He keeps on having long patience unto you as a matter of principle, not purposing that any should make it their purpose to perish, but that all should make it their purpose to come into a change of purpose. God's purpose was to provide a means whereby man could purpose to have life and have it abundantly that though he was guilty of sin, to have that sin remitted in order to have fellowship and communion with the Holy God. The plan of God has purpose for man, and we identify that plan as a plan of grace. It is a 
plan to redeem man from sin. It's a plan whereby man could have redemption because God would assume all of the responsibility for the cost on our part so that we might have life and we might have it abundantly. This plan we call grace, it meets our needs in three areas. For grace does not apply just to salvation, but it certainly applies there. It also applies to our living the Christian way of life and ultimately to eternity. By forming three acrostics of the word grace, using the letters G-R-A-C-E to form three separate acrostics, we are able to address the three areas in which God has treated us in grace. Salvation is by grace. The ability to live the life that He wants you to live and that will be most profitable for you is by grace. Your eternal destiny He has made provision for in grace. As it relates to salvation, we have formed the acrostic G-R-A-C-E to say God's righteousness at Christ's expense. That's a marvelous thought and certainly if He had left it at that, that would have been sufficient for us to live out life, to understand that we have been declared holy and without blame because we have called upon the name of Jesus. When we call upon the name of Jesus for salvation, in that moment of time, God's righteousness is credited to our account and all of our sins have been paid for with the blood of Christ upon the cross. We have His righteousness. That word righteousness is from the Greek word dikonosun and it means uh, that which is in conformity to the plan. We guys would understand it as that which is built or designed according to the blueprint. You ladies would perhaps better relate to it conforms with the recipe. God has set forth for us His provision so that we are acceptable to Him, not by our failure because we are sinners, but by His grace because we are saints. He has given us His righteousness. The passage that we read this morning, that I corrected the address uh, for that passage, uh, we said uh, had been uh, marked as verse 21 through verse 21. It's actually verse 12 through verse 21. And in it we have been given the understanding of how God's righteousness has been given to whosoever will. With His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, He made that plan of salvation available to everyone so that we can simply call upon the name of Jesus for salvation. And in calling upon His name for salvation, 
we are credited immediately with His perfection and uh, are declared holy before God. Every sin that we have committed and every sin that we will commit is charged to Him. Now, sin is not profitable for us. It may be filled with various degrees uh, and uh, avenues of some kind of satisfaction or pleasure, but it's short-lived and not profitable for us. And so God has provided grace to enable us to live the Christian life that we might experience the fullness of what He has designed for us, not just when we get to eternity, but that we might experience it even now during this lifetime. So God has treated us in grace for living the Christian life. G-R-A-C-E, God's resources at Christ's expense. God has provided all of the resources that we need in order for us to live out the design that He has set forth for our lives. And we need to understand it's based on His grace. He has assumed all the responsibility. The cost for our resources has been paid for at the expense of Jesus Christ. So we have God's resources at Christ's expense. Providing everything that we need in order to live the Christian life. And then ultimately in eternity, we experience the grace of God and its fullness as we use the letter G-R-A-C-E to stand for God's realm at Christ's expense. The very kingdom of God, the realm of God is ours. We are joint heirs together with Christ and we are going to rule and reign throughout eternity because of His grace. Remembering that He has assumed the responsibility that He has paid the cost. So the presentation of God's grace plan is revealed to us in His Word. He revealed His plan of grace to all of mankind in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, before He sent the Redeemer, and in the New Testament, after sending the Redeemer. At the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, God informed Satan and Adam and Eve that it would be the seed of the woman that would triumph over Satan. Satan and mankind would be confronted with the issue of the seed of the woman. The Old Testament revealed God's plan. The New Testament recorded the implementation of that plan. In the Old Testament, as God used that to reveal His plan, we see that He revealed various aspects of His plan and what we identify as the ritual of the law. And He confirmed that which He had revealed through the law through the various prophets that He sent. There were five daily offerings that revealed God's plan of grace in the Old Testament. Three of the offerings 
were about salvation. Two of the offerings <clears throat> related then to man's fellowship with the Father. The three aspects of the offering that taught salvation shows uh, that the coming Messiah would die physically on the cross. That was shown by the burnt offering. That He would die spiritually. That is, He would be separated from the Father and the Holy Spirit. That was taught through the meal offering. And uh, then there was the peace offering that was to be offered that illustrated how God would provide through the Messiah that man could have fellowship with Him. Those three offerings spoke of salvation. The two other offerings that were offered every day, the burnt offering and the trespass offering, they were there to show the fellowship that God could have with man that man could have with God. The sin offering was for sin in general. Sin that you were not even aware that you might have committed that was in violation of the law that you had not understood, but nevertheless was a departure from that. There was a sin offering for that. There was a trespass offering then that when you identified the thing that you knew you had done that was revealed in the law and you came to understand that, there was an offering called the trespass offering and when you made the trespass offering and the sin offering, they were everyday offerings to remind you that the Messiah was coming. And when the Messiah came, those offerings that were teaching what was going to occur would be replaced with the actual reality of our sin forever being remitted not atonement, not a covering, but a removal of our sin as far as the east is from the west. So in the Old Testament, you had five daily offerings that spoke of salvation and spoke of fellowship with God. In addition to the daily offerings, there were specific sacrifices that had to be offered for specific sin that you committed. It was to teach the grace plan of God that the Messiah would come and He would redeem us from all iniquity and in Him we would have eternal life. In addition to the daily offerings, then we had seven annual feasts that were to be observed throughout the year. Seven feasts that revealed the plan of God and the grace of God and the provision of God. Passover spoke of the sacrificial death of the Messiah and was fulfilled on the Roman cross as He was crucified in 30 A.D., providing redemption for all mankind. The Feast of Unleavened Bread identified the provision of the Messiah so that man 
could live the Christian life. The Feast of First Fruits spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah as the first fruits from the dead. The Feast of Pentecost identified the provision of the Messiah for the establishment of the church and this administration in which we live today called the church age. There are three feasts that have not yet been fulfilled. They were not fulfilled in the first advent of the Messiah. They will be fulfilled when He comes again. The Feast of Trumpets will be the regathering and the judging of the people of the earth at the second advent of Christ. The Feast of Trumpets, the call to assembly, will be followed then by the Feast of Atonement that will remove the curse from this earth. No more problem with weeds out there in the yard with thorns or thistles or the ferociousness of beasts, but rather the curse will be removed from the earth for the millennial reign of Christ and the Feast of Tabernacles will be the millennial reign of thousand years when Christ Himself will sit upon the throne of David in Jerusalem and... Uh, there will be a removal of the curse. Those seven feasts, four were fulfilled in His first advent, and three yet to be fulfilled, tell us the plan of God's amazing grace. By grace we are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. The other ritual and ceremonies of the law revealed in detail concerning this plan of grace, the study of each ritual with the various requirements and ceremonies is a fascinating study, especially on this side of the cross as we see Christ, the fulfillment of each of those things. In addition to the five daily offerings and the seven annual feasts and the other ritual and ceremonies, God provided judges being sent to call attention to and the conformity to God's plan of grace. In addition to the judges, He sent prophets. Prophets were sent to illustrate and to proclaim and to warn concerning the various aspects of God's plan of grace. That's the presentation of grace in the Old Testament. Salvation has never been by works except the work of Christ. It pointed in the Old Testament to prophetically to His coming. And now on this side of the cross, we look back upon it in history. So the New Testament recorded the implementation of God's plan of grace. The Gospels record the coming of the Messiah. Matthew presents Him as King. Mark presents Him as the servant of mankind. Luke presents Him as man. And John presents Him as God. No contradiction, just a compliment that each of the Gospels makes to the other. He was the servant king, the God-man who came to seek and to save all that are lost. 
The book of Acts records the early history of the church. Acts documents the changing of administration from Israel to the church and sets forth for us the basis of our ministry and our living out our design as a sojourner for God. The book of uh, the epistles, the various books of the epistles, uh, record the instructions for the church and they provide encouragement and clarification as it relates to the plan of grace and the role that each of us has as we proclaim the plan to the world as a sojourner. A foreigner not living in our own country, but living alongside the locals to do the king's business. The book of Revelation records God's time outline for the age in which we live. God has established then, in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, memorials of His grace. We've seen leading up to the coming of the Messiah that there were many memorials and rituals that were given to humanity to instruct them in God's plan of grace. But now in the church age, following the actual coming of the Messiah and His redemptive work, those memorials, those rituals, for the most part, have been fulfilled. Yeah, there are three feasts that yet remain to be fulfilled, but they do not relate to you and to me in our work today, but to Israel after we have done our work and have been raptured into heaven. In this period of time, those who accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior have become the administrators of God's revelation. And as a result of the virgin birth, the sinless life, the sacrificial death, the victorious resurrection, the glorious ascension, the present intercession, and the soon coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have been given our own memorials to grace. Christ's reconciling work of grace is manifest in two spheres. The purple page in your study guide represents those two spheres. An illustration that is basic to our understanding of the distinction between salvation and our fellowship with God and to understand the memorials that Christ has set up. These two spheres were actually the focus of the daily offerings in the Old Testament before the church age began. We've already noted that there were three offerings which spoke of salvation. The burnt offering, Christ's physical death. The meal offering, Christ's spiritual death. And the peace offering, His reconciliation that He provides between man and God. Then there were two offerings, we said, that spoke of fellowship. The sin offering and the trespass offering. The top circle in the chart that I have given you in your study guide represents salvation, and uh, the burnt offering, the meal offering, and the peace offering were all 
taken care of in fulfillment by Christ's death on the cross and by our personal accepting Jesus Christ as Savior, in that moment we are entered into that top circle. We become then in union with Christ. The top circle represents salvation. And you'll notice that it's drawn according to the grammar with a dot and a circle around it. And that depicts our position that we see in the New Testament repeatedly in Christ, in Christ, in Him, in the Beloved. We are represented by the dot and He is represented by the circle. That circle and dot is based upon the Greek grammar of the text that relates to salvation. For we find in Titus 2.14, we're told Christ hath redeemed unto Himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. The word peculiar doesn't mean an oddball or an eccentric. It means, well, literally a dot with a circle around it. That dot with the circle around it, we said the dot represents the believer and the circle represents Christ. The Greek word translated peculiar in Titus 2.14 is the word periousion, a dot with a circle around it that shows ownership and possession. And it's illustrated in grammar by a dot and a circle to show that it's permanent. The dot cannot get out of the circle. You cannot get out of Christ. When you receive Christ as your personal Savior, the Holy Spirit places you once and for all in an act that is not reversible into union with Christ so that we are owned by Him and we have His righteousness credited to our account. At salvation, we are placed in union with Christ and we become His possession. The grammar uses the dot and circle to show it's permanent. But in addition to that, when the Scriptures talks about us being in Christ, that word in is translated from the Greek preposition ain, E-H-N is how we would spell it in English. And it is a static and a permanent position that we have in Jesus Christ. We can understand the doctrine without the grammar of the Greek. But with the grammar of the Greek, it becomes explicit and emphatic in our position to Him. The memorial or ritual that illustrates our being placed into union with Christ is water baptism. Some of the young ladies have come to me and ask about being baptized. Water baptism is a picture, a portrayal. It is a memorial. It is a ritual that illustrates our being placed in Christ. At the time of our salvation, we are placed in that union with Him 
no longer do we practice the burnt offering and the meal offering and the peace offering, for they have been taken care of and fulfilled by the life and death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we call upon the name of the Lord for salvation, believing in our heart and accepting Jesus Christ as our uh, debt payer, as the uh, basis for our salvation, in that moment that we call upon the name of the Lord, you are placed in union with Christ. And water baptism is to portray that to others. At the time of our salvation, we are placed also in fellowship with the Father. Now that's illustrated in the diagram at the bottom of that illustration in the lower circle. That circle is illustrated with a line into the circle. The Greek grammar, the preposition is not in our being in Christ, but it's ice, it's entrance into fellowship with Him. And it's illustrated with a line because we get in and out of fellowship with God. I was born to Sterling and Pauline Welch 86 years ago tomorrow. I was born to them. There were times that they were pleased with that, but there were times when they were not so pleased with the fact that I was their son. Nothing could change that. I was their son by virtue of birth and will always be their son. But I did not always please them and always walk in fellowship with them. When we receive Christ as personal Savior, when we ask Jesus to be our Savior or acknowledge to the Father that we are accepting His gift of grace, we are placed in that circle with Christ, uh, of Christ and we are identified as being born again, being born spiritually. We receive a spiritual birth at that point. We are always going to be a child of God because of our birth once we have made that decision to receive Christ as Savior. But we're not always going to please God. We're not always going to obey all the thou shalt and the thou shalt nots. We're not always going to manage our life according to His direction even though He has designed it for the most profitable and enjoyable life we are going to come up with substitutes. We're going to try this. We want to try that. We don't think that relates to us. And we break fellowship with God. We do not cease to be a Christian. We do not cease to be a child of God. But we break fellowship with Him. And so there is a provision that God has given to illustrate this fellowship. It is the ritual or the memorial of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is given in order that we might be reminded of the provision that God has given so that we can live the life that He's called us to live. The bread for the Lord's Supper 
is unleavened bread. Leavening is a biblical sign of sin, and it speaks, bread speaks of fellowship. So the unleavened bread speaks of a sinless fellowship with God that is possible for us. Along with that memorial to remind us is the juice, which represents the blood of Christ. We perhaps are negligent in observing the memorial often enough. The Scripture doesn't really set out a pattern of how often we are to observe that memorial. Every Sunday we are reminded of that situation, and we take a few minutes for personal inventory and to personally confess our sin, because the ritual as it relates to salvation is baptism, but the ritual as it relates to living the Christian life is the personal and private confession of sin by each of us as believer priests. We simply acknowledge to God what we have done. The ritual or the memorial that memorializes that for us then is the observance of of the Lord's Supper that we can observe. So the confession of sin is actually a ritual in which we acknowledge that what we have done is sin and are in agreement with God that it is sin. Now nowhere in the Bible does the believer, uh, is the believer to confess sin in order that he might have salvation. We call upon the name of Jesus, receive Christ as Savior, and we are saved and have salvation. But we need to maintain fellowship with Him. Uh, I, I hear a lot of folks tell God they're sorry for the sin that they've committed. Well, that's alright, it's just not the means by which we write our standard of fellowship with Him. Nowhere in the Bible is the believer told to feel sorry for his sin, but rather we are to acknowledge what is sin and what is not. Then the word confess is from the Greek word homologomen, and it means to tell God specifically what you did. What is it that He doesn't know what you did? (laughs) No, He knows. He knew in eternity past. As a matter of fact, He knew long enough beforehand that he made provision so that you could have forgiveness. We don't have to ask for forgiveness. It's already been provided. We have to acknowledge that what we've done is sin. And we do that privately between us and God as we simply acknowledge to Him, tell Him the specific thing that we have done. Now it's important for us to understand the doctrine of baptisms. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, and of the laying on of hands, and of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. This passage indicates 
by the plural use of the word baptism that there are several types of baptism. To have a proper perspective for baptism, then each baptism needs to be understood in the light of what the Bible says. The thing we need to understand is that any reference to baptism is a reference to identification. It's important to note that the word baptize is not a translation of any Greek word into English. It's what we call a transliteration. A translation substitutes an English word for the Greek word. A transliteration takes the Greek word and then brings it with English spelling and and punctuation into our language along with its meaning. That word is brought then into our language. Going back in Greek literature, uh, poems like the Odyssey uh, by Homer uh, that related to the Trajan Wars, uh, the Greek word is equivalent to our word for identification. The literal meaning of the word baptizo, brought into English by the word baptize, the meaning of the word is to be immersed into union with something for the purpose of identification. When the believer is baptized, He is immersed into the water for the purpose of being identified with Jesus Christ, our Messiah, our Savior. As a matter of fact, there are seven distinct baptisms that are identified in Scripture. Four of them are real baptisms, and three of them are ceremonial The four real baptisms, when I speak of a real baptism, it means we really are immersed into that for identification. Uh, The four that we identify as real are referred to as dry baptisms. Where the ceremonial baptism is a wet baptism. We have, first of all, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 13 says, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jew or Gentile, whether we be bond or free, and have been made to drink into one Spirit. Every person since the day of Pentecost in 30 AD who personally calls upon the name of Jesus for salvation Everyone has been placed into union with Christ. We have been immersed by the Holy Spirit into union with Christ so that we become one with Him. His righteousness is credited to our account and our sinfulness is charged to His account. The grammatical phrase of the Holy Spirit identifies the Spirit as the one that does the baptizing. It's not baptized into the Holy Spirit. It's being baptized by the Holy Spirit. As you call upon the name of Jesus for salvation, the Holy Spirit 
immerses you into oneness with Christ. You become the dot. He is the circle. You eternally belong to Him. You have been saved by grace through faith. The baptism of the cup is mentioned in Matthew 20, verse 22. Jesus said, Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Now, although the phrase, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, is not in the better text in Matthew, it is found in Luke's Gospel in its entirety. Christ was identified with our sin. He was judged for our sin on the cross. And Christ stated on the cross, it is finished. Literally, He said, the debt is paid in full. And He dismissed His Spirit at that point. When a person believes in Christ, God then imputes to that believer His own righteousness, and we are declared holy and without blame. He transfers our debt to that that Christ has already paid on the cross, and we are declared holy. The baptism of the cup was His being immersed into the suffering for the sin of the world as He was upon the cross. For three long hours, uh, He cried out upon the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, or my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As He bore your sin and my sin on the cross. So that we might be declared righteous and holy in Him. That was the baptism of the cup. The baptism of the fire is also mentioned in Scripture. Every person, except babies, or those born with no mentality, that that dies physically without believing in Jesus, will be identified with fire. Fire is always a symbol of judgment. When John the Baptist spoke of Jesus... He identified the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of fire. If you do not receive Christ as your personal Savior, then you will experience the baptism of fire, which is the lake of fire and brimstone forever. Matthew chapter 25 verse 41, Christ says, Then shall he say unto those that are on the left hand, that is the unbelievers, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Man goes to the lake of fire and brimstone because he does not call upon the name of Jesus for salvation. The baptism of fire. And then there is the baptism of Moses that is mentioned in scripture. First Corinthians chapter ten verse two. And all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. I remind you the word baptized speaks of identification. The children of Israel that followed Moses into the Red Sea were baptized. They were identified with Moses in the cloud and in the sea. 
as uh, the baptism of Moses is spoken of. It simply means they were identified with Moses in his leadership. Now, there are three ceremonial baptisms identified in Scripture. What we are talking about at this, with the purpose of this message today is to understand the ceremonial baptism and God's instruction for us concerning it. But we had, first of all, the baptism of John the Baptist, where John the Baptizer was baptizing. The purpose of John the Baptist's baptism was to be identified with repentance for the kingdom of God was at hand. This is not a Christian baptism. It was a Jewish baptism. The baptism was to identify the Jews with the King of Kings and the coming of the kingdom. The statement of John the Baptist was, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. And it was anticipation of the Messiah. And so they were baptized to be identified with the coming of the kingdom. The baptism of Jesus was not Christian baptism. The baptism of Jesus was when Jesus in His humanity went to John the Baptist and wanted to be baptized of Him. And John said, no, we got it all backwards. If I have need to be baptized of you, not you to be baptized of me. Jesus said, suffer it to be so. Allow this to happen because I am here to fulfill all righteousness. So His baptism, the baptism of Jesus, was to identify with His commitment to fulfill the plan for which He as the Messiah had been sent. But the baptism of believers since the day of Pentecost in 30 A.D. is a ceremonial baptism. It is a water baptism. It is a public attesting to the believers in an assembly that that individual has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 8 verse 35 and following, Philip explained to the Ethiopian eunuch the meaning of the passage that he was reading in Isaiah 53. The eunuch read about the coming of the Messiah and Philip explained to him that Jesus of Nazareth had fulfilled that and had gone to prepare a place for him. And so the eunuch said, Well, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, Well, if you believe in all your heart, you mayest. The baptism, the water baptism, is not required for salvation but it is a symbol, a memorial that one has been saved, that one has accepted the grace of God. There's no biblical indication that this practice of water baptism was ever discontinued. Today, there are many churches, there are many groups that no longer practice water baptism, saying, oh, it was temporary during that period of transition, but I find nothing in Scripture that identifies it as being 
temporary and that nothing certainly that indicates that it has been discontinued. But rather, in the Great Commission, we are told by the Lord, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. It's a commission to the church to teach all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So water baptism is an outward sign of an inner experience. When you call upon the name of the Lord for salvation, there is that union that takes place where when you receive Christ as Savior, when you accept Him as your Savior, you are placed into union with Christ. Water baptism is your public testimony to others that you have accepted Christ, that you have been placed into Christ, and water baptism is performed so that you can give that testimony to others. We already have seen that the word baptize is from the Greek word baptizo, and uh, uh, it's the term used uh, uh, to identify the memorial that God established for the church for us to give our testimony to others. At the moment of your faith in Jesus Christ, the moment you call upon the name of Jesus for salvation, the Holy Spirit baptizes you into Christ. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into His death. Paul writes in Galatians, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's what occurred. We don't see it, but the Scripture tells us of it when we receive Christ as Savior. We illustrate it with the circle and the dot to identify our union with Christ. After salvation then, we are immersed into water to portray that identification in an outward memorial. Peter is recorded in the book of Acts as the early church began. Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, and as many as the Lord God shall call. And with many other words did He testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received His word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. The form of believer's baptism is immersion of the believer in water to identify with God's plan of grace and to identify with our being placed into Christ at salvation. Although some churches and denominations sprinkle instead of pour, uh, and pour instead of immerse, all would acknowledge that they have only changed the form for convenience, say, 
that the original form was immersion. And so we continue to identify that provision that God has given for us to give testimony to others. The prerequisite for baptism. You say you would like to be baptized, and my question unto you is, why do you want to be baptized? And uh, the answer I'm looking for is to tell others that I've accepted Christ as my Savior. I I don't want a person to say, I want to be baptized because I want to be a Christian, because I want to be saved. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Grace alone. But we give that testimony in water baptism. We are told then by by Peter in Acts 2, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts, and they said unto Peter and unto the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, and every one of you be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus, for the remission of sin is not in order that our sins might be remitted. No, the Greek preposition ice is that we might be baptized in water to illustrate with a view to what has occurred when the Holy Spirit has entered us into union with Christ. We do not baptize individuals for salvation. We baptize individuals to help them identify publicly their faith in Jesus Christ. So baptism is ritual. It's given to the church to identify a person as a believer in Jesus Christ. It's accompanied by the ritual of the Lord's Supper and the routine confession of sin. The Lord's Supper is a repetitive memorial that celebrates the provision of God's grace, enabling the believer then to maintain fellowship. The observance of the Lord's Supper is not the means of fellowship with God. Confession of sin is the means. The Lord's Supper is a memorial to give testimony to that provision of God's grace. Next week, we're going to look at that second memorial, the memorial of the Lord's Supper, and we're going to be observing that memorial uh, in our service as well. i give you a heads up on that, and we're going to explore it in this follow-up to water baptism. But because some have asked about baptism, I wanted us to look at that this morning. And uh, uh, there are some cards on the table in the entryway. If you've received Christ as Savior and you've not uh, experienced water baptism, uh, we're going to be scheduling a baptism service shortly. And uh, so if you would fill out one of those cards and drop it in the uh, plate, uh, just write the word baptism, your your name and whatnot, and just the word baptism, and then I will follow up 
uh, with you on that. So these cards are on the table. And next week then we will look at the Lord's Supper, that memorial before moving on then into further into the third chapter of Second Peter.